0: Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Inside Intercom. This week, we're continuing our series of live recordings from SaaS Talk 2018. In this series, we're picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing SaaS companies. These are folks that have built SaaS companies from the ground up and who will expose frameworks and philosophies that can be applied back to growing your own business. This week's guest, April Dunford, has a long career as a startup executive going all the way back to a time before startups were cool. She was a VP of marketing for a series of high growth startups and was previously an executive at enterprise companies like IBM and Nortel. But more recently, April has risen to prominence as a speaker, author and in-demand consultant specializing in one thing, product positioning. Advising companies on go-to-market strategy and messaging, April ensures they're going after the right category and communicating their offering in a way that grabs prospects attention and makes its value crystal clear. In my chat with April, we get into the ins and outs of positioning your product, how to market your product in an increasingly crowded marketplace, and why marketers should focus less on tactics and more on strategy. To hear the remaining episodes from our SaaS stock series, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let's hop over to our conversation with April.
1: You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. April,
0: welcome to Inside Intercom. It's great to be here. So you've held executive roles at about a dozen incredible companies. Could you maybe just give us a rundown of how you got to where you are today?
1: Yeah, so I'm kind of a repeat executive at a series of startups. So I was a CMO, a COO, a CEO one time as well at seven different startups. Six of those seven got acquired. So that resulted in me ending up at four different Fortune 500 companies. So it's been kind of a long, weird career. Um, right now I'm a consultant and I work mostly with tech companies and my specific area of expertise is positioning. But yeah, I have a long, crazy career in tech.
0: And moving from startup to Fortune 500 companies, how did you find that transition? Do you prefer to work in smaller startups?
1: Yeah, I think I'm I i think I'm more wired for startups, to tell you the truth. But I learned a lot from working at Fortune 500 companies. Like, you kind of learn what you would do if you had all the money and all the resources and all the people. And it's interesting to sort of look at that as kind of a best practice and then say, well, we don't have any money or any people or any resources. So we're going to try to get the same result with, you know, scrappy nothing little crumbs and do it that way. And so, I don't know, I learned a lot at big companies. but. One thing I didn't like was the roles are really narrow. So when you work at a big company, you're generally responsible for one really narrow thing whereas small companies, particularly if you're executive, it, you know, it's expected you're going to get your hands in a lot of different stuff and Different stages of the company, the work is different, so you end up getting exposed to this super broad set of things to do, which is way more fun. At least for me, I thought it was way more fun. Sure,
0: and and your undergraduate was quite technical, so I believe it was systems design or systems Systems design engineering. Yeah. Yeah, So I mean, maybe. Talk us through what that particular degree has sort of taught you about maybe in your career as an executive or as a marketer.
1: Yeah. So, you know, I did a degree in engineering, but I, I don't think I was really sure what I wanted to do after I graduated. and But I had massive student debt and so <laughs> I needed to get a job. And I happened to have a friend that worked at a startup and she recommended me for a job and I got a job and it happened to be in the marketing department. but. The first job i had was we were selling a database to database people and so they needed someone who could uh, stand on stage and demo a database which is like the most boring demo you've ever seen i'm literally writing sql queries on a stage (laughs) and so i did that for a couple years but they liked the idea of hiring an engineer to do it but they wanted someone that wasn't afraid of public speaking anyways that company got acquired I ended up running marketing after my boss quit. And so two years out of engineering, there I am running this big global marketing organization. And at the time, I thought, well, how hard could this be? I'll just figure it out. And it, it turned out it was really, really hard. And it's kind of amazing. I didn't get fired, but I didn't. And so from that point on, I just thought, hey, this is my bag. This is what I do. Tech marketing's my thing.
0: And you're currently writing a book. Is that correct? On positioning?
1: Yeah. So. I've been doing, as a consultant, I've focused on positioning mainly because I feel like it's sort of the underpinning of all good marketing and sales is strong positioning. And yet it is such a misunderstood concept. So there is no good book on positioning right now that I can point the companies that I work to, too. So there was a book that was written in the early 80s called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. Everyone's read was it. Jack
0: Trayvon and Al Reyes. Exactly.
1: So it, that thing was written before the internet. It's mm. so old. And all it does is define what positioning is. It doesn't tell you how to do positioning. And so... The goal of my book is to give you kind of a handbook that you could read it and say, okay, not only do I know what positioning is, now I can actually go and attempt to do it for myself.
0: So take us back to maybe Al and Jack's thesis back in 1982. Has anything really changed since then, do you think?
1: Well, a lot has changed in terms of how crowded our markets are. So, you know, Reason Trout talked a lot about how, you, you know, you needed to be able to position your strengths and weaknesses versus your competitors' strengths and weaknesses in order to kind of stand out in a market. And if you read their book, they're talking about how crowded markets are in 1982. Well, if you thought they were crowded back then, you should see what we've got now. So I think we need positioning more than ever. Um So I do think the concept is super relevant right now. I just think it's poorly understood. It is often, people will confuse it with branding or writing a tagline or messaging, when in fact it's actually the definition of your go-to-market strategy. This is the market we intend to win. Here's how we're gonna win it. These are the customers we're targeting. Um, These are big, big business strategy questions that startups in particular often don't think about consciously and then therefore have problems in marketing and sales down the down mm-hmm. the road.
0: So maybe let's take a hypothetical example. Let's say you're launching a brand new product tomorrow. Like what are the mm-hmm. first steps you're you're taking to understand how to position it?
1: Right. So most companies start with an idea to make an existing thing better. So they'll say I'm going to build a better email system or I'm going to you know build a better CRM or a faster database mm-hmm. and they iterate on the product, they get it out in the customer's hands. Um, The customers say, I love these features, I hate these features. So after they go through this period of kind of monkeying around with the product, they have something that customers love and they start selling it. Often, they never revisit that positioning. So they just say, you know, we, 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 started out to build a database, this thing is obviously a database, or it's obviously a CRM. But quite often, if you were a customer coming at that thing, having no prior experience with it, you might look at it and say, well, no, that's not CRM, that's chat. Or no, that's not email, that's team collaboration. And so, what startups need to do in particular, is to be able to sort of back up and say, if I put my customer hat on, what is the big, best context I could weave around this product so that it makes sense to people when they first encounter it cold?
0: Hmm. And I well, as a consultant at the moment, I mean, is there particular, you know, mistakes or challenges that people are coming to you with when it comes to positioning?
1: Yeah. So most of the time, weak positioning manifests itself in a bunch of ways. So the most common symptom of weak positioning is people just don't understand what we do or you get compared to competitors that the company says, these are not our competitors at all. And yet customers keep thinking we're they just are. like them. Mm-hmm. So you'll see this kind of weakness in the funnel in different ways. So often it'll be difficult to get a lead into the funnel because people don't understand what it is. And then sometimes what you'll get is a lot of Um, essentially friction in the mid-funnel where you can see customers wrestling with, is this really what I need? Is this really what's going to solve my problem? Uh, And then you'll get a lot of churn on the back end where they think you do one thing, and then when they actually get their hands on it and use it, they're like, whoops, no, this is something else. (laughs) And they'll churn out on you. So you tend to see those symptoms quite a bit.
0: And is there a particular product, maybe either current or historical, that you think is the perfect example of of positioning?
1: Um, There's a lot of ones that I use as examples. There's a company in Canada that builds essentially autonomous vehicles for manufacturing plants. And they did an interesting shift in positioning because they started out saying what they did were robots or robotics. But the problem with that is in the context of manufacturing, a robot is a stationary thing. It doesn't drive around. It's not particularly complex. And so they shifted their positioning more to this idea of we're an autonomous vehicle or a self-driving car for inside a manufacturing plant. And so that shift really changed the mindset of customers about what is this, what's the competition, what's the value of it. So I think they're a neat example. Sure.
0: Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these, like, before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier the people lean into this completely new mindset, earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type of customer experience it's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them it's just a matter of time that's all to come on episode two of OffScript. script you can watch it on intercom's youtube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here now back to today's episode April, you launched maybe close to sixteen products over the course of your career, and I'm happy to say that you've kind of mentioned that most of them or fourteen of them have been successes and only two flops so far. Yeah, uh, two,
1: two kind of flops. Yeah.
0: So maybe could you bring us through the self-proclaimed flops and maybe what did you have you kind of learn from them?
1: Yeah. So the the two that were flops were flops for completely different reasons. Mm-hmm. So the first one was uh, was actually a great product in a really narrow, small market that was impossible to make any money. So the total addressable market for this thing just wasn't big enough. So we were one product and there were three products in the family and this was one product and it was clear that we were never going to make enough money to even support having two developers on it. <laughs> so <laughs> I did all this. We were selling through distribution, so the margins were terrible. And any any way I worked the spreadsheet on the business plan, I was like, I can't even pay for my two developers, let alone <laughs> me and my desk and the other things. And so my recommendation to the CEO was that we shut it down or we attempt to sell it. Um, And he wasn't super happy with that idea when I first presented it to him. But I convinced him by showing him the data over and over again, like, look, we're never gonna make any money on this. We had another product, on the other hand, that was growing like crazy with a giant addressable market. And so we ended up selling that product For a million bucks, if you could believe it, taking that million dollars and pouring it into the product that was growing, which was ultimately super successful, and they were acquired at a giant multiple. Me, personally, it didn't work out so good, because I didn't have a job after they (laughs) sold it, and that was a bummer. (laughs) That's what you call taking one for the team. So that was the first flop. But I do believe, looking back on it, I think we did the right thing. So the lesson there is, I mean, sometimes you can take a product and position it into a better market. And sometimes the thing is just narrow. And you know, you should, if you can't make the numbers work in any fantasy scenario, they're just not gonna work. You should just quit that and do something else. The second one was a completely different thing. And the second one was more about team dynamics. So I, I came in, and again, the product was spectacular. They had patents on it. It was really neat technology. It was in a space that I knew a lot about. And I fell in love with this product when I first saw it. I was like, oh, this thing is gonna be super successful. But then when I got inside, it turned out the company itself was really broken. So there was the lead investor and the founder were fighting. Eventually the founder got fired. They were replaced by a new CEO. Uh, who didn't get along with the management team, and so we couldn't get out of our own way to make that thing successful. And so I ended up, I ended up leaving there, and the the product was a flop. But I, the the big lesson I learned from that is that you know, again, marketing pixie dust cannot solve all problems, and sometimes uh, team dynamics can take something that's even completely magic, patented thing, and turn it into kind of a pile of poo because we just can't get out of our own way to make the thing successful. So team dynamics matters a lot in a startup. I think after that, I did a lot more assessing the team and tried to fall in love with the product less.
0: Sure. So, I mean, would you say that you learned as much from the two failures as you did from the 14 successes, do you think?
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, Mm. for sure. I mean, you learn something on all of these. Like the things never go the way you think they're going to go. Like even the ones that are successful, there's, you know, it's not all sunshine and roses the whole way through. There's a lot of failing on the way to succeeding. And so you learn through that too.
0: And you're consulting now with your company uh, Ambient Strategy, is that correct? That's right. And what are the sort of three uh, ingredients you look for when? choosing a particular client that you would like to work with
1: yeah so i i only work with tech companies because tech's sort of my bag Mm. i only do b2b because i have only ever done b2b and so i don't get b2c i think that's like weird magic stuff so i only do b2b and I do a lot of pre-screening on clients to make sure because I only do positioning work because I've decided this is my favorite thing to do. So that's all I'm going to do. And so I do a bunch of pre-screening so that I can convince myself that, yep, you have a positioning problem. I can help you solve that. Now we're going to work together. So usually it takes a few phone calls for me to get my head around what I think the problem is. Sometimes it's not positioning. Sometimes it's execution. Sometimes it's just a crummy product, like sometimes you have that. And if I don't think we can fix it with positioning, then I usually say no. The last thing is that the great thing about doing consulting later in in your career is you get to be kind of picky about Mm. who you work with. And I'm super busy. I get a lot of calls. And so I do a little bit of asshole screening. Like, if you know, do I think they're going to be fun people to work with? <laughs> like, are we all going to get along? Are we going to have a good time when we're working together? And if the answer to that is no, then I usually say, you know what? I think your positioning's fine.
0: Yeah. So it's a kind of, <laughs> of mutual fit discovery, I suppose. As That's as right. Yeah. They,
1: they got to like me too, right? And we're all weird startup people. And so we got to make sure we're the same kind of weird while we're on the phone so that we're all going to have a good time working with each other because, you know, I'm getting old. Life is short. You want to work with good Yeah, I don't, have, an, uh, ones. You know, I don't <laughs> have enough time to waste my time with the folks where we're all just going to have a bad time. Yeah.
0: So like marketing and, and selling a, a B2B product, especially maybe enterprise ones that you know, I know that you've kind of deep experience in. I love um,
1: enterprise. That's yeah. my favorite.
0: It's, it's kind of the sales cycle is obviously, it's a lot longer and a lot more complicated than... Uh, let's say uh, a B2C product would be for sure Uh, how do you use positioning to help sort of prospects get to that you know magic moment or aha moment over the course of what could be you know weeks or actually even months
1: oh months years in (laughs) some cases yeah so Um, There's so much you can do around positioning at different stages in a deal, particularly a big enterprise deal. So first you have the positioning that makes sure that you are attracting the right kind of business in the first place. So you're not wasting your marketing people's time or your salesperson's time trying to sell stuff to a customer that is clearly not a good fit for what you do. So I think in your, in your marketing messages, in your value propositions, in the customer stories you choose to highlight, all the things you do to sort of capture a lead and bring a lead in, should continuously be reinforcing the positioning of this is what we do, this is what we're good for, and this is who we're for. If you don't fit these things, then you shouldn't be here. And then when you get in the middle of the funnel, Uh, particularly on an enterprise deal, you're generally working with um, a lot of different people. Like the, the deals are complicated, so there's not just one buyer, there's multiple buyers, and everybody needs to understand that. So it's a lot of consistency and repetition and making sure that your sales rep is saying the same thing as your marketing material, which is saying the same thing as your CEO who goes in to close the deal is everything else. And so you end up spending a lot of time making sure that we're delivering this really consistent message so that nobody's surprised later. Like, oh, I thought you were this and you didn't do this. Uh, you want the bad deals to drop out quickly. Uh, and the good deal is to move along fast because everybody's clear on what this thing is. And then even when you get down to the close part of an enterprise deal, it's funny. Like most big enterprises will have a purchasing department, and you'll get all the way through this thing and think, "Oh, we're done this deal." And then purchasing leans over and says, "So what are you guys again?" <laughs> sure. And you're like, "Oh, damn, we have to start this all over again." So even when you get down to purchasing and legal, even those teams inside a buyer need to understand clearly: this is who we are. These are the compar- Bearables. This is how we decided to make this purchase decision. It's all good. You should just sign off on that.
0: Sure. I mean, does positioning then extend also beyond sign up as well to make sure that, you know, the actual the marketing messaging that they've been sold on For is sure. actually you know. Yeah, you actually
1: do the thing that you say you do. Yeah, that's super important. Um, It's really important for onboarding too. So, you know, when you think about when a customer just gets started on your stuff, they need to get to this moment where they feel like, ah, this is the thing that I'm, this is the value I'm supposed to be getting out of Mm. this. So they need to get that quickly. Um, And then I think from a positioning perspective, like particularly in SaaS, you're not done when you close the deal. So, you you know, you have to make sure that when that renewal time comes up, the customer still understands this is why you are the best solution for this particular thing and not some other product. And so you can't let the, you can't let the, um, the customers, I guess, get confused about who should you be compared to, and who should you not be compared to? And so I think it's it's never done. Sure.
0: And you you kind of mentioned earlier about how crowded B2B SaaS is the landscape. I mean, there's you know look yeah. at the martech landscape. There's you know about yeah. seven thousand products these days. So yeah. when you know features and you know products can be replicated so easily, you know positioning becomes so much more important. So. Is there any sort of advice you'd give them to sort of stand out in this particularly crowded marketplace?
1: Yeah, I think the best thing that B2B SaaS vendors can do is stay really focused on their differentiators because there are things about your solution that your customers, your best customers really, really love about you. And the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. And I know we want to talk about all the things. But the best thing to do is to just hone in on, this is our secret sauce. This is the thing we do better than anybody else. If you don't care about this stuff, we're not the solution for you. And most vendors where they get in trouble, B2B SaaS vendors, is when they start trying to tell me about every single little thing they do. And some of it's their secret sauce and some of it's just meh, it's just like everybody else's thing. But they're trying to sell me too much stuff. And what happens is that you end up looking like everyone else. And so I think it's important for SaaS companies, in particular B2B SaaS, to lead with your best stuff and get your best stuff out front, your secret sauce stuff out front. And then you got lots of time later to tell you, you know, do the checkbox of the Mind million other features you've got. We'll worry about that later. But if people understand your core value and your core differentiators, then you'll stand out on your own from all these other folks that are like, hey, we're everything for everybody.
0: And so uh, finally, I suppose reflecting on your career now as a sort of seasoned marketing and executive. If you were to give the April of 10, 15 years ago one piece of advice, you know, what, what would that be?
1: Yeah. That's a good question. People ask me that a lot on podcasts. I think you get that question when you're old. <laughs> I wonder if I get that question when I was in my twenties. Yeah, so if I went back to like young April, you know, there's probably two things. So one was at the beginning of my career in marketing, I was way too hung up on tactical execution. Mm-hmm. And I see this as a common thing with younger marketers that I mentor now. They're like, you know, we're gonna do SEO and we have to keep up on all the SEO stuff and we're gonna be really, really good at that one little SEO thing. And it's not that tactical execution is important, it is, but it's actually the easiest thing. The hardest thing is the bigger picture stuff. Like, are we even in this business? Why are we in this business? Why do we win deals? And I wish I had have spent more time on those bigger picture things because, you know, we rush, I think, to get into tactics. And so less time focused on marketing and more time focused on markets, I think, is the advice I would have gave my younger self. Yeah, and then the second thing would have been, The way we think about a product is super flexible. The product itself actually isn't. The product kind of is what it is. And I mean, we have a roadmap and we're gonna build things and add things to it and we might do an acquisition or something. But if you really wanna change things quickly, it's much easier to change the frame of reference and change the way we think about the product than it is to actually change the product. Mm And so generally, if you've got a product and there's a bunch of happy people out there, uh, you just need to figure out why the people are so darn happy. And there's probably a mismatch between the way people think about your product and what your happiest customers see. So again, if I had to go back to my younger self, I think I'd be worried more about these bigger picture things than you know. when I was younger, I got really hung up on, oh, this product is crap. And if it only had these three more features, it'd be so much easier to sell and it'd be better than that other thing. When in fact, You know, there's so much stuff you can do by just context shifting and frame of reference and focusing on what you're good at right now.
0: Sure. And I mean, to your earlier point, it's probably easier to shift that frame of reference at a startup than it is at a Fortune 500 company, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Although at Fortune 500 companies, you get to do all kinds of fancy stuff like (laughs) lock the Gartner Group guys in a room for three months and just throw money at them (laughs) until they say what you're saying. (laughs) Not that I've ever done that. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> great, well on that note I think we'll wrap up uh, So April, thank you so much for your time It's been enlightening
1: Yeah, thanks, thanks. it has been great You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast For more episodes visit soundcloud.com intercom If you'd like to subscribe search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher And for even more great content check out blog.intercom.com